Good morning, everyone. A couple years ago, up in Estes Park, we had a postmaster named Joyce. And she was a real stickler for the rules. One day, as I was standing in line waiting to buy some stamps, I watched as a man approached her counter. She greeted him by name. Hi, Joe, how are you doing? And they chatted for a minute. She asked what he was up to today and how his wife was doing. Joe answered her questions and then said that he had received an orange slip in his mailbox and asked if he could please pick up a package. Okay, Joyce said, I can get that for you, but first I need to see your ID. Pastor Jeff has been talking about our church identity, and I wanted to take this week in between his sermons to talk about our personal identities. Who are you? What defines you? How is our identity as believers different from the rest of the world? And what does it mean to find our identity in Christ? And kids, I was happy to see that there are a lot of you here today. As I've done in the past, I have a special quiz for you. I will say the answers to all of these questions in today's sermon. And at the end, after our last song and the blessing and announcements, I will be here up front. And if you can come give me three correct answers, I will have a special gift for you, okay? So here are the questions I will ask you to answer. What kind of animal appears in the memes? Who ate the dinner rolls? And what makes Christians different from people who don't believe in Jesus? All right, let's begin with prayer. Father God, I want to invite you to be here with us today. Please open our hearts and our minds to a bigger and better understanding of who you are and what you want for our lives. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. There are a lot of acronyms that are used to define people, especially in our world today. In our desire to treat everyone as unique and special, we have divided groups of people and named them not even with a full title, but with an acronym that's just a few letters long. I'm going to put up a few of them on the screen, and I'd like you to see if you can guess the definition before I say it. We'll start with an easy one. RMCSDA. So most of us here in this room are part of this group, right? Rocky Mountain Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. Next one is S-A-H-M. Do you guys know this one? You got it. Um, I was going to say for those of you who are in um, any mom groups online, we know that one. Stay-at-home mom. All right, next one is BIPOC. We see this one a lot, right? Black, indigenous, people of color. What about WASP? Have you heard WASP? I see a few WASP today. White, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant. And then lastly, how about DINK? 
Do you know the word dink? This is dual income, no kids. And of course, I don't see many of those today. Most of the dinks are enjoying the day out on their yachts. So sometimes our identities are chosen. Sometimes they are something we were born into. And sometimes our identities are based upon what others say we are. When I was a college student in Texas, I worked as a waitress at the Cracker Barrel. I was told by one person that I was the best server they'd ever had. And I was told by another that I was the absolute worst. If we are dependent upon what other people say, we can get very different pictures of ourselves. Have you ever outgrown a title? I remember when Aliyah and I were first married. He regularly received calls to play for youth camps and young adult events. And one day I realized that it had been a while since we'd received one of those requests. I was having a lot of fun with it, and I was ready to travel again and go to another conference. So I asked Aliyah one day when he thought we'd be asked to participate in the next young adult event. And it was then that Aliyah said the meanest thing to me he has ever said. He said, you realize we're no longer young adults, right? Oh, ouch. I told him that I had asked a simple question and there was no need to be rude and hateful about it. When we base our identities on factors like our age or abilities, it can be really difficult when that identity is lost. I was kind of dragged into motherhood kicking and screaming. But once I met the little nugget that was Ellie, I fell in love and fully embraced my role as mother of a newborn. And then mother of toddlers. I believe I could have lived in the role of mother of toddlers for the rest of my life and been very happy. That was a good role. I loved that identity. But as you all know, that role is just temporary. Even if you have more babies, you only get those golden toddler years for a very short time. Then it's time to move on to mother of school-aged kids, mother of high schoolers, and long before I will be ready for it, empty nesters. I have been thinking a lot about this as I am zooming toward these next versions of my family. I am realizing more and more that I must find my identity in something more. And as Christians, we use this phrase a lot. Our identity can only be found in Christ. But what does that mean exactly? I believe in Jesus, but does that define me? I know a lot of people who believe in Jesus, and I would not define any two of them in the same way. They are all very different people. I've been reading the latest Brant Hansen book, and in it, he talks about a scripture that he says has been misused, or at least when he was growing up, he always felt that people were using this verse 
to tell him to study hard so he could argue with people and win. And that verse, or the part of it says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I'm going to read this verse in its entirety in a few different versions, and I want you to notice something in each. So we'll start with the New International Version. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And now let's look at the American Standard Version. But sanctify in your hearts Christ as Lord, being ready always to give answer to every man that asketh you a reason concerning the hope that is in you, yet with meekness and fear. And then lastly, the New King James Version. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Of this verse, Hansen says, think about that. Peter expected us to be so different that other people actually notice how hopeful we are, even in the midst of anything and everything. No matter what, we're hopeful. Not complaining, not griping, not going on about how the country is going to hell in a handbasket. This to me is so powerful. The implication of this verse when I was growing up, or at least my perception of it was, be prepared to defend your Sabbath observance. Be prepared to argue your beliefs on the state of the dead. But in fact, this verse says simply, to be ready to give an answer when people ask you why you are so hopeful. When we are living calm, hope-filled lives, those around us will notice and ask questions. And this is one of the simplest evangelism tactics I've ever heard. It comes directly from scripture. But as broken people, we keep trying to make it a little more complicated. And I think realistically, given the choice between evangelism through a lifetime of assurance in God's goodness and hope for the future versus speaking to a crowd for a week, I would definitely choose the one week evangelistic series. But it's so interesting that Peter doesn't say, if you are asked, he says, when you are asked. This means that others will notice that you are living a life filled with hope and they will ask you about it. They will notice that there is something different about you, more peaceful maybe, more hopeful. Let's go back to the prior verse because it is equally good. It says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be shaken. We live in a society that is gripped by fear and anxiety. We almost celebrate it. And I brought with me today, because they're all over the place and I love them, I brought a few of my favorite anxiety memes. 
So here's the first one. There has been a British voice in my head saying, bit sad, isn't it, for the past week and a half? Or anxiety, what if this happens? Me, but it won't. Anxiety, but what if it does? Me, you got me there. When your anxiety goes away and not having anxiety gives you anxiety. <laughs> and then lastly, I thought you were never, ever, ever coming home, so I panicked. This last one could easily be applied to Christians. Jesus, we lost hope, decided you were not ever coming back, so we panicked. And why are the memes so funny? It's because they're so relatable, right? Whether you have a diagnosed condition or you simply live in a state of high stress, most of us can identify with these memes. This is the culture in which we live. I would like to remind you today that we are called to live lives that look different than those around us. We are called to live lives full of peace in Jesus and hope for the future. Even the way we grieve should look different. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14, we all know this one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. At the end of 2021, I lost my brother Dalton. And I always heard people who suffered big losses say that they think of that person every day. And at the time, I thought, well, that couldn't be possible. I'm sure there are days that go by you don't think of that person. But I will say I have found that to be true of my brother. Not a day has gone by I haven't thought of him. And not a lot of people knew him well, but a few have asked me what he was like. Most people just saw his strong, silent facade, but he had other sides that people didn't get to see. So I wanted to share a story with you that is just one of those memories that makes me smile. One of my family's favorite movies to watch at Christmas time is the 80s classic, While You Were Sleeping. Do some of you know this movie? It's a story about Lucy, who has lost most of her family, and she's living by herself in Chicago. And because of this, she's asked to work on Christmas Day at the subway station. While she's there, she sees a man get mugged and pushed onto the train tracks. She saves his life, and in a series of mix-ups, winds up in the hospital room and is mistaken for his fiance. Peter, the man she saved, is in a coma, while Lucy gets to know and tries to help his family. And in the process, she falls for Peter's brother, Jack. So at the end of the movie, Lucy says that famous line, Peter once asked me when it was that I fell in love with Jack. And I told him, 
it was while you were sleeping. Oh, it's so good. Every year, every time. So one year, while I was still in college, our family decided to watch it early, and we put it on following Thanksgiving dinner. My mom had made a delicious spread that included turkey and my grandma's famous dinner rolls. I had eaten so much, but I was already looking forward to snacking on leftovers, especially the rolls later that day. So we watched the movie together, but we are so full of tryptophan and carbohydrates that every one of us ironically fell asleep before the movie ended. At least that's what I thought had happened. When I woke up, I went to the kitchen to make a plate of leftovers, and to my absolute horror, I found the basket of Grandma Drain's rolls completely empty, nothing but crumbs in the napkin lining. And as sisters can be, I was immediately mad. I said, guys, what happened to the rolls? Buddy, which is what I usually called my brother, do you know where they went? And Dalton, who I thought had been napping along with us, said, Dina, you may ask when I ate all the rolls, and I will tell you, it was while you were sleeping. <laughs> that is one of those movies that applies to many things in life. I was recently visiting with a friend, and we were talking about grief, loss, and the unexpected turns. And one of us said, it's kind of like Lucy said in that movie. My dad always told me, life doesn't always turn out the way you plan. I just wish I'd realized. And then my friend and I both finished the line together through laughing and tears. I wish I'd known he was talking about my life. So what defines you? We have a friend who considers himself a coffee connoisseur. He loves to visit fancy coffee shops. He likes the kind that I think are too pretentious, which is probably why he's never invited me to go along. But he and Aliyah visit their favorite coffee shops, and coffee seems to be the thing that this friend uses to define himself. He loves to drink it. He loves to look at it. He loves to talk about it. Coffee, coffee, coffee. So we had him over for lunch one week after church, and we had a great time visiting. And after we had eaten, we were about to begin dessert, and I offered him a cup of coffee. This guy, who could talk about nothing else, took one look at our sad, small coffee mate maker and said, nah, I'm good. <laughs> By contrast, we have friends who own a coffee shop. They roast their own beans. When they travel, they will bring all of their supplies, sorry, and they will not just measure the beans, but they will weigh them. Then they Google how much to vary the water temperature to account for the altitude. And then they painstakingly make their brew. These people know coffee. I have marveled that these friends will drink the swill I make. 
The coffee is not what defines them. We have some amazing conversations around our kitchen table. Sometimes these talks have lasted into the wee hours of the morning. They are simply happy to sit and visit with us, regardless of how good or sometimes how bad the drink is that fills our mugs. And I always feel loved by them. I'm so grateful that they do not define themselves by their good taste. If they did, they would not be sitting at my kitchen table drinking my coffee. And of course, there's nothing wrong with being passionate about certain things or having hobbies. But I want to encourage you today to find your identity in things that are bigger, in things that will last. So if we can't define ourselves by the things we like, where do we find our identity? As I've been studying these past few weeks, I have compiled a list of three things that every one of us in this room can claim as ours. We can claim these things as our identity because they do not change. So let's look at them together. First and foremost, I am a child of God and God loves me. Well, how do I know this? There are so many verses we can find in scripture to back this up, but here's just one really great one. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. If in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Secondly, we know that we are not good on our own, but we know that we are saved by him who has the power to forgive sins. So I am saved by him who has the power to forgive me. And how do I know this? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lastly, we live with hope for a brighter future. And in doing so, our earthly lives become brighter. We do not have to live our lives filled with fear and dread. We can live lives filled with peace, calm, and hope because we trust that God is ultimately in control. And how do I know this? For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I have good news and bad news for you today. If your identity is based upon anything other than being a child of God, your identity will change. Do you love your current identity? Just wait, it will change. Do you despise your current identity? No need to worry because it can and will change. In fact, we are told in scripture, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Simon Sinek, in his book, The Infinite Game, talks about how important it is to focus not on wins along the way, 
but the infinite game. In the afterword of his book, he says this, if we choose to live our lives with a finite mindset, it means we make our primary purpose to get richer or promoted faster than others. To live our lives with an infinite mindset means that we are driven to advance a cause bigger than ourselves. We see those who share our vision as partners in the cause, and we work to build trusting relationships with them so that we may advance the common good together. We are grateful for the success we enjoy, and as we advance, we work to help those around us rise. To live our lives with an infinite mindset is to live a life of service. When I read about the mindset Cynic describes, it sounds very much like the mindset we are to adopt as Christians. When we trust that God is going to win the infinite game, we are not worried about dominating every little scrimmage. When we work to advance the common good together, we are not concerned with whether or not we will come out on top. When we live with a hope and a future, we are not consumed by day-to-day -day worries. There is a Brennan Manning quote that was made famous by Billy Graham in a DC talk song in the 90s. Many of you know it, but those of us who are now in our early 40s and believed we were being very edgy by listening to the Jesus Freak album, those of us have it memorized. And it goes like this. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Are we denying our faith by our lifestyle? Do we claim Christianity but stress and worry like the rest of the world? Do we profess to follow Jesus but live our lives as those who have no hope? The one thing believers have that non-believers do not is hope. This is what sets us apart and makes us a peculiar people. Many of those who do not believe in Jesus have other great things. They too have knowledge, creativity, morality, integrity, vision. But the one thing we can claim as uniquely and wonderfully ours is hope. Hope is such a powerful thing, and it can get us through situations that would otherwise be unbearable. Because we have hope that Jesus will come again and make things right, we don't have to worry about injustices that are done to us. Because we have hope that Jesus' promise is true, we don't have to worry about coming out on top in this life. We believe there is something better waiting for us. And that belief, if truly taken to heart, will make our lives on this earth all the better. Walter Brueggemann says this, hope, on one hand, is an absurdity too embarrassing to speak about. 
for it flies in the face of all those claims we have been told are facts. Hope is the refusal to accept the reading of reality, which is the majority opinion. And one does that only at great political and existential risk. On the other hand, hope is subversive, for it limits the grandiose pretension of the present, daring to announce that the present to which we have all made commitments is now called into question. And then C.S. Lewis said this, the fact that our heart yearns for something earth can't supply is proof that heaven must be our home. I believe that we serve a really big God. He sees the end from the beginning where we cannot, and he will make all things right. And I live with a hope that I will be reunited with those who I have loved and lost. I plan to give my big barrel-chested Grandpa Rogers a huge hug. I will listen to a few jokes from my Grandpa Drain. And it will take a while for me to get caught up with my brother. I imagine that I will tell him in rapid-fire succession all the things that have happened. And then I'll wait for him to ask, when did you do those things? When did that happen? And I will finally get to say to him, buddy, it was while you were sleeping. When our identity is in Christ, our whole outlook on life will change. We will not be worried about what people think of us when we fully understand that we are deeply loved and valued. We can live peaceful lives, unencumbered by fear and what others are thinking of us or worried about what the future holds. People will notice and will ask us, what is the reason for our hope? We are loved by someone who has not boiled us down to an acronym. We are told that he knows our names. More than that, he knows the number of hairs on our head. And more than that, even knowing us as well as he does, we are still told he is thinking more good thoughts about us than there are grains of sand on the beach. I want to encourage you today to make it your goal to understand how completely you are loved. Maybe you have believed that your identity was something that someone else put upon you. You believed you were the worst waitress ever or that you were too old to participate. When we find our identity in Christ, it negates the wrong versions of ourselves that others have given us. Even if you don't feel it yet, I want to ask that you start living as if you understand how very much you are loved, provided for, and just how poor, important you are to the creator of the universe. I want you to live it so fully that people will stop and demand you give a reason for the hope that you have. <laughs>